you turn to Genesis chapter 10, we'll pick up in verse 10, and we're going to finish tonight what has historically been called the Table of Nations. This incredibly long list of a bunch of sons of Shem and Ham and Japheth, the founders of the three basic people groups that are going to spread out across the earth. They will populate the earth. They'll be the basis for what we would call the nations of the earth. And ultimately, which will lead us to chapter 11, God sees this incredible propensity of man to work together towards evil ends. And we can see that in the history of the world. When you look at the world, the world has taken... Uh, almost everything that God has given that is good and figured out some way to ruin it, some way to use it for evil, and some way to take advantage, in essence, of other people. And so this becomes a huge problem in the time uh, of these original inhabitants of the earth after the flood. And so we'll see God deal with that in chapter 11. But as we dig in, the basis of this particular chapter begins really in chapter 9 with the introduction of a single individual. That single individual is a historical figure called Nimrud or Nimrod, whichever you prefer. Uh, But his real name is actually Nimrud. Uh, That as Nimrod comes on the earth, um, he becomes kind of the first of the real conquerors of other human beings. We're told that he is a hunter, we're told that he is mighty, and we're told that he actually is someone who is a leader. He's going to found and he is going to preside over the kingdom of Babylonia. And so as he comes on the scene and in really in this chapter in verse 8 and then is mentioned again in verse 9, when we get to verse 10 where we'll pick up, And it says there, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. And so it's looking back towards Nimrod or Nimrud. So would you pray with me and let's ask the Lord to speak through what could otherwise be a long list of the names of a bunch of people. Amen. Father, thank you that you placed every last name in this list by your divine hand through the power of the Holy Spirit recording these things, passing them along to Shem, ultimately to be recorded and written down by Moses. And God, we thank you for the history that we have here. And as we look at these nations and ultimately the languages that will spring forth from them, God, we thank you that the only reliable source of this information sits in front of us here in what we call the 10th chapter of the book of Genesis. We honor your word and we thank you for it. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So where we left off last week, uh, we're continuing now with the descendants of Ham. And we pick up in verse 10. And the beginning of his kingdom, again looking back to the mighty one, the hunter Nimrod, uh, of his kingdom was Babel. And so his sons then are Erech, Achad, and then they are also in the specific land, the land of Shinar. And from that land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, and Rehoboth-ur, Kalah, Rezin, between Nineveh and Kalah, which is its principal city. And so here's this, this beginning of a list. And the interesting thing is, it is we have explored our world archaeologically, 
Every one of these names comes up in, in Babylonian history. Every one of these names comes up in a cuneiform list someplace in Assyrian history as well. And so these are well-verified names, not just in the Bible, but also in extra-biblical revelation. And so we, we have this historical record that includes all of these names. And in fact, if you've been kind of tracking with what's been going on uh, since we pulled out of Iraq, and obviously ISIS then came in, one of the cities that they actually began to destroy and defile uh, was the modern city of Mosul, which is the ancient city of Nineveh. And so in Nineveh, we find also this ancient city, which they have now excavated, and inside of the excavations, which are underneath the city streets of Mosul, they found this very long catacomb. That catacomb is covered with cuneiform tablets, and in it is the tomb of the prophet Yunus, the Nabai. And so we all know that we have a book in our Bibles named after the prophet Jonah, which is a version of Yunis. And so here is this ancient city that still sits on a map today, uh, nearly four and a half thousand years uh, after its founding. And so from 3000 BC, you see this history that uh, begins to unfold. That's the history of what we call Babylon. And of course, we all know that the Babylonians are going to be the mortal enemies of the Jewish people. We're going to get to their founding as we see the sons of Eber. We're also going to see that they will birth out of them, will come several other world empires. And we're going to get to all of those tonight, uh, including the inhabitants of the land of Canaan that I mentioned this morning, if you were with us, like the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Girgashites and all these people that were in the land uh, that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob before the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness of Sin, which is modern-day the Saudi Arabian Peninsula. Before they wandered in, they, they were the original inhabitants. And so we pick up here in the Table of Nations. I thought it would be helpful for you to kind of be able to see a map, and I think most of you can see this fairly high resolution. And so we're going to leave that map up for a little bit as we move on because it helps you kind of locate some of these places. And the reason the locations are key to us is these places that are named here in Scripture are no longer called these particular names, but the remnants of them are in the historical record. And so we're talking about the area of the world that is actually currently called the Fertile Crescent. Uh, you can actually see why it's called that. You have the Tigris and the Euphrates River, these two massive river systems uh, that come from what we would call modern-day Turkey. Uh, they flow down from the north and end up in the Persian Gulf. Uh, and in this area, pretty much all of these names we can find. You can see these circles that we've got on this map. Uh, the inhabitants uh, or the descendants of Ham, the descendants of Shem or the Semite people, and the descendants of Japheth or the European or the Indo-European peoples. And so these particular designations will help you kind of understand as you look at some of the names of these particular tribes. And in the center of all of this is this land which is still being fought over today. It's being fought over for a different reason. And remember that during that day and time, in order to have an effective city, there's a couple of things you needed, especially if you lived in the desert, and chief among them would be water fresh water and lots of it. And so Babylon, Babylonia, 
uh, actually is in the middle of these two rivers that we call today the Tigris and the Euphrates. They've been that name for uh, more than 2,000 years, but whether they were called that in this time, we're not really sure, but it is absolutely sure that about 2,000 years ago, those names were uh, visible in the historical record. The city of Baghdad today is actually the site of the former city of Babylon, which is the home, which is the place that Nimrud is going to rule from. And there's some interesting history with it that actually goes all the way into our modern time. Because if you remember back when we fought the Gulf War, uh, we deposed Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein believed that he was the reincarnation of both King Nebuchadnezzar and Nimrud. And so one of his goals, which he set about doing, was to reconstruct the former city of Babylon, including the Hanging Gardens. Uh, including part of the Tower of Babel itself. And to that end, he, he had his workers uh, press about two and a half million clay bricks with his name, his seal, and his stamp, and basically his goal to rebuild the kingdom of Babylon. So Babylon in the last days is going to become uh, important again. And in fact, we see it in the book of Revelation. So that area of the world is going to remain on the world scene until the very, very last days. And it will rise up again, though it uh, is fairly unimportant today. Uh, It will once again uh, become very important. Interestingly enough, in the 5th century, uh, the father of what we would call modern history or the recorded history of humankind, Herodotus, uh, wrote that the city itself Uh, was surrounded by almost 60 miles of walls. Now remember, this is an eyewitness account. Uh, His volumes on world history are the standard for ancient world history. Um, In some places, because of the terrain, those walls were up to 300 feet high uh, and 87 feet wide. So Babylon, the city of Nimrud, uh, has always occupied a huge place in the history of what we call the Middle East, and specifically Iraq, modern-day Iraq today. And of course, to the south and to the east of that is what we would call uh, today Iran, was called then and up until 1979 was still called Persia. Uh, It was not uh, until after 1979 that it became the Islamic Republic of Iran. Uh, It was actually called Persia. And so this area is rich with deep history Uh, that we can verify. The archaeological expeditions that began in Babylon in about 1899, uh, they ended in 1917. Uh, They they resumed after a period of kind of laying in in ruins in 1958, uh, have revealed the size, the scope of the city, the gates of the city, some of the things mentioned in your Bible. Uh, The gates of Ishakar were actually... Uh, found those gates of Ishikar. You can go see them today in the London National Museum. Uh, there's just a ton of history that you can take and go, wow, my Bible says this exact same thing with these same peoples. And so the traditional site even of the Tower of Babel, which we'll get to, uh, is in this location. The old, oldest settlement that's been thus far uh, excavated is a little over 3,000 years old. Uh, and, and it was eventually destroyed by one of the great kings, uh, Sargon of Akkad, 
Uh, he would then capture the Babylonian uh, dynasty. It would eventually become the Amorite dynasty, and it would be passed on ultimately to the Hittites and to the Assyrians. And so we know that within the history of the Jewish people, throughout the entirety of the Bible, we know a couple of world uh, ruling governments, uh, the Babylonians and the Assyrians, are mentioned over and over and over again as the mortal enemies of the Jewish people. And so it is here that we find out they're actually related to the Semites or the Shemites through Ham. And so this is a, a piece of history for us that helps us look at our Bibles as a historical document, though it is not in its entirety complete. It isn't like we can go, okay, here's how they traveled to here and there. But the history of these people, uh, including... Uh, some mentions, if you will, of things that we can verify. And so when we look back on the history of this region, we find the Akkadian Empire, uh, we find the, the great great hero Gilgamesh and his flood narrative, uh, which, which apparently is almost identical when you read it. It's like, wow, this sounds a lot like what happened to Noah. And so many of these things, when we relate them to the history of the region of the peoples there, though they are not directly a a representation of what we find in Scripture, they're awfully close. The most famous king of all in that region of Babylon was, of course, the great uh, King Hammurabi, who lived uh, between 1792 and he finally died in uh, 1750 B.C. And he was famous for his codification of laws. Those laws would follow along, and in fact, the Mosaic law itself actually follows a very similar pattern. And today, in our modern day and time, most of the laws of the developed world follow along the same basic lines as the Code of Hammurabi. So this is an important center of history, and the people named in it, uh, we can trace back to these kings and to these kingdoms that were founded, and we find them in our Bible. After all of these things uh, begin to unfold, one of the things that we can look at afterwards are some of these satellite cities. And some of those, we do not know their exact location. But for the most part, most of these are, excuse me, clearly mentioned in Scripture. And so when you look at this map, we'll take a look at some of the the rest of the children that are listed. And those children become, in essence, founders of geographic regions. They will ultimately develop languages and keep track of how many of them there are because there's a specific number, and we'll get to that at the end tonight. So verse 13 says, And then uh, Misarim begot Ludim, Anamim. And when you see the I-M ending on specifically Hebrew names, it, it, it is always a plural. It's basically just a plural ending. So if this was Anam, Anamim is the plural of that. And so it's basically saying these are the descendants of or the region where this person settled, and the people in that region are the descendants of this particular person. So it's showing that these people all had children, and that's an important fact here. If they just list the singular names, then you could say, well, maybe they just traveled there by themselves, they were very lonely for a while, and they died off. But they're letting us know that they had descendants with the I-M ending on it. Lehabim, Nephthuim, Pathrusim, Kalushim, And from those, and here comes a name that is important to us, another mortal enemy, 
came the Philistines of Kaphorim. And so these groups, and if you locate them, they're actually all on the map up there. Most of them are in the intersection of the three circles. Uh, you can find nearly every one of those names. I think I got most of those on there. Uh, when you look at them, you, you're starting to see the development of the peoples that are surrounding the land of Canaan. And, and so the Philistines are going to come into play later in the biblical narrative in the text. Uh, and they also will be the, the people that we would find in what is today modern-day Gaza. And so this is these giants who are in the land. Uh, they're, they're going to be trouble for the Jewish people as they enter into the land uh, that God had promised to them, the land called Canaan. And it goes on in verse 15. It says, And Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. And so here we have the founding of the Philistines, and a whole ton uh, of their, in essence, the, the smaller city-states and nation-states that are going to surround uh, the people of Israel. Ham's youngest son, Canaan, super prolific, has all kinds of kids, and he has 11 sons and an unknown number of daughters, uh, the eldest of which will found the city of Sidon. And Sidon and Tyre, the twin cities on the Mediterranean coast, Found today the ruins thereof in modern-day Lebanon. Uh, lots of history in those particular cities. Uh, ultimately, Alexander the Great uh, eventually conquers the city of Tyre. It had been unconquered for almost 2,000 years uh, because it had a garrison on an island just off the coast. Alexander the Great gets in. You can, this was in National Geographic a number of years ago. They actually found the causeway uh, that history says was built out to this city that was founded by the descendants of Canaan, and a tablet found in those ruins clearly says that this city was founded by Canaan. And so these little bits of history help us look at our Bibles from a very different standpoint, and that standpoint is this is not just a bunch of names somebody pulled out of the air. This is God telling us who we should find in the historical record archaeologically of who settled some of these cities and that is exactly what we find. Uh, cuneiform tablets have been found all in this region, mentioning the name of, of the Hittites, uh, except it's spelled a little differently because a K is on the front, it, front of it, so it's, it's spelled, we would call it Kitay. Um, and if any of you have ever flown on Cathay Airlines, uh, it is a transliteration between that which is in cuneiform in Cathay, uh, to Cathay, and so it becomes the foundation for what we would call uh, those n nations that are primarily of Asian descent. And so they're going to split off, they're going to move east, uh, and you, you can see how the world actually becomes populated. Some other nations that are in this group, and, and they're all, now you can look, you, I was jokingly saying this morning, you know, just a bunch of ites. Well, again, the reason that that is... An interesting ending is because the it ending on there means peoples of. So not only is it plural, but it means the descendants of Canaan, plural, that is a people group. It's more than just him and just his family. It's actually those who have come out of his loins in a much broader sense. So now you're talking about people. So they are the Canaanite people and the Hittite people and the Philistine people. Uh, the Gergesites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Ar Argivites, uh, the Edomites, all of these, the Midianites, these are all children of Canaan 
who founded nation or city-states who ultimately would become a people group, many of them developing their own language, much like you see in Phoenicia. Phoenicians, uh, Phoenicians developed their own language. Uh, the Canaanites spoke primarily, ultimately, Aramaic. But you, you end up with all these groups that are going to be divided out, and, and as we look at them, we start looking for the history of these people. And interestingly enough, several of these groups were to believe to have not existed ever. And as we've gotten better at archaeological excavation, we've uncovered all but three of them uh, in some way, shape, or form, whether just identifying they were a specific people group or whether it was a city that was founded by them. And so in this list, all of them, uh, we have not yet found uh, the Arvidites, we have not yet found the Archites, uh, and the Hamathites, those, those three cities or those three people, we haven't found. But every last one of these... Uh, listed here in our Bibles, we, we have found. and uh, There's another name that's in this list. Notice it, we'll pick up in verse 16. And the Jebusite, the Amorite, the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Archite, the Sinite. How'd you like to have a name like, I'm a Sinite. I'm like, my tribe is Sin, and there's a whole lot of us. So the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemorites, the Hamathites, and afterward the families of the Canaanites that were dispersed. And so here's these names that we have up here. When you start looking at them, it's interesting the name Sin comes up a number of times, and it's usually spelled slightly differently. Sometimes it is S- the S-I-N, but sometimes it's Z-I-N or Z-A-I-N. Uh, but it's very clear that these are actually er- areas that we call uh, modern-day Arabia. You'd be the Saudi Arabian Peninsula would also include Yemen and the United Arab Emirates. Uh, it, it is this area of the world that is primarily inhabited uh, by these Arab kingdoms. And so Canaan, this particular son, uh, his son is named Sin. And it, it, it's interesting because his name actually means defiled. And, and so how would you like to have a whole family that's named the defiled ones? And, and be named after something that ultimately would become, you know, God's way of explaining to you you're going the wrong direction. But they find this record of this name prolifically, and it's actually spelled Sine, S-I-N-A-E, uh, and will actually make its way across the lower uh, part and will wrap around through Persia and along over into India. And so uh, it's very likely if you've ever studied... Uh, for instance, the history of the Chinese people, uh, you're going to find that, or the Japanese people, it's usually spoken of in a historical sense, Sino-Japanese or Sinology or the study of Chinese history. So these peoples kind of worked their way along the coast and eventually would end up in what we would call modern-day China, Indonesia, and that area of the world. And so these are the Oriental people, the Sinites and the Kates. Uh, the Hittites would spread to Asia Minor. And as you look at these nations, they, they become very, very prominent in the way that our world actually understands history. So you have the Hittites. Um, they built one of the strongest kingdoms in Asia Minor. And we talk about Asia Minor. It's the area that is really to the north, generally, of modern-day Israel. Uh, it would include Syria today, parts of Turkey today. Uh, it, it would include Lebanon to some degree. 
Uh, it would extend all the way up into the Baltic states, and even part of Greece would be known as Asia Minor. But the Hittite kingdom, uh, which was believed to not exist until we found some tablets uh, that specifically called them a people and called them Hittites, uh, ultimately uh, they, they master ironworking. So the whole Iron Age is actually due directly to the Hittite people, not the Romans. Uh, their, their king ends up assassinated, their, their cities are captured, uh, and ultimately you move down this chain, and, and as, you, as you look at them, uh, you have the Assyrians, and the Assyrians will be the mortal enemies of the Jewish people. Ultimately, it will be the Assyrians uh, that will come in about 800 B.C. Uh, they will come in as an invading force from the north. Um, ultimately, they will take uh, 10 of the 12 tribes into captivity, and they will cease to be, and so that all that's left uh, is, the, is, is the tribe of Levite and the tribe of Judah. So the priestly tribe and the tribe of the king. And it's interesting because all that's left during that period of time of the, the Assyrian history is the one tribe we need to have to still have Messiah, which is the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's the only one that's records actually were kept through all of the captivities. And so the Assyrians actually kind of helped to some degree uh, condense all that. But they, were, they invented bows, they invented spears, uh, tremendous horse warriors. Um, they built roads to distant parts of the empire. And then you have the Chaldeans. They literally would destroyed Nineveh. And so the Assyrians had occupied it before that. The Babylonians will come on afterwards. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was actually a Chaldean king, but he occupied the kingdom of Babylonia. Uh, and so it is he, Nebuchadnezzar, that would create the famous Hanging Gardens. And he would create, in essence, armored warfare. So chariots and all those kind of things come from him. And then finally, the Phoenician people. Phoenician people, uh, there's an interesting article right now. I think it's in this month's uh, National Geographic History about the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians had a single thing that they were originally famous for. And so as we find the founding of them and the founding of Tyre and Sidon, uh, they were famous for purple dye. And there's a little tiny mollusk, a Nepalina mollusk, that when crushed, uh, it takes about 10,000 of them to dye a single garment uh, into this deep purple. That purple was the chosen color of royalty. And so Phoenicia began to create these giant vats that were where these mollusks would be crushed and dyed. So the whole place stunk like you couldn't imagine, but they were the supplier of the world's purple fabric. So if you were a king, uh, if you were a prince, if you were a duke, if you were an earl, uh, you had to deal with Phoenicia. So they developed uh, seafaring, modern seafaring. They built harbors, very nice harbors, the remnants of which are still uh, available. You can see them today. Uh, and really they developed the first trade on the open ocean. So they sailed the full length of the Mediterranean. They traded with what we would call modern-day Spain, uh, down to the cities that, that are mentioned in the book of Jonah, where Jonah ran and hid. Instead of going to Nineveh, which we've seen, he went to Tarshish, and, which is modern-day Spain. Verse 19, And at the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, as you go toward Gerar, and as far as Gaza. As you go from Sodom and Gomorrah to Adama to Zeboim, and as far as Lashah, these were the sons of Ham, according to their families and according to their language, in their lands and their nations. And again, remind yourself, 
that God does not use the term race here. He's not differentiating between people's skin color. He's simply differentiating between where they settled geographically, their languages, their lands, and in essence, their countries. And so we are still in clear view that God intended us to be a single people group in that sense. And so you have basically the settlement now of the, of the entire Middle East all the way to the descendants of Shem. And the descendants of Shem, obviously Shem uh, is, is really a way, it, it is the word from which we get Sem or Semite. And so these are the descendants of the Jewish people. And notice that they are the, he was the father of all the children of Eber. And Eber is the shortened version of Hebrew. So it is from here that the Hebrew people get their name. And so it is of the descendants of Shem. And you'll also see that Shem, because it's he who likely keeps this record, uh, names his own children down to the fifth and or sixth generation, or as he names the rest of them either down to their uh, third generation or the second generation. So he's keeping track of the godly line of Shem because it is from that line uh, that Messiah will come. And so we see the descendants of Shem now. And the children, verse 21 uh, born also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth, the elder. And so Eber, from that, the term Hebrew comes. Uh, and he's identifying, in essence, that he was directly associated, or more directly, uh, with Japheth than his, than his father's prophecy. As Noah prophesies that these nations are going to birth certain aspects of the, of the world's uh, understanding uh, of how we interact with people. Some would be geared toward technology, some would be geared, geared towards spiritual things, geared towards learning, and, and some people groups would be the bearer of the lineage of the Messiah. That people group is the tribe, in essence, of Shem. And from them we see these others. Verse 22, uh, the children of Shem are Elam, Ashur, Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram. And, of course, Elam is the ancestor of the Elamites. Uh, we have a number of monuments that identify them as a people. Uh, we're going to see them again in chapter 14. Uh, their king, King Elam, was the leader of the confederacy, which invades Canaan uh, during the time of Abram. Uh, we, we see that these are going to be also the founders of the, the ancient cities of the Chaldeans. So uh, the city of Susa or Sushan, where we find... Uh, Nehemiah, as he's there as the king's cupbearer in Nehemiah chapter 1. Uh, in chapter 2, he sees that the city gates are burned. Uh, it, is, it is from the descendants of this son uh, that we find uh, the, ultimately this incredible leader, Nehemiah. Uh, we also find that Daniel comes from this lineage as well. And so uh, Ashur will become the founder of the Assyrians. And in, in as they begin to linguistically change after the Tower of Babel, it will be Aram uh, that will be the founder of what would be the lingua franca of the day, which would be Aramaic. That comes from Aram. So he is the one that will, after the Tower of Babel, uh, actually begin to put forth uh, this language that basically will be used in, in much of the ancient world, uh, especially in the time of Jesus. Uh, some of the old portions, oldest portions that we have uh, in the Dead Sea Scrolls 
for both the book of Daniel and the book of Ezra are actually written in Aramaic. Verse 23, in the children of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gather, and Mash, are Faxad begot Salah, and Salah begot Eber. And so these four sons of Aram, uh, along listed with the three sons of, of Shem that are, that are named here. And so uh, we, we see really the kind of an abbreviated history uh, of the Jewish people in this list of names as they begin to spread out through the land. Or ultimately, we're going to see that Ab- Abram uh, is going to settle in this land called the land of Shinar. He's going to ultimately leave there and go to Canaan. And so we see how those areas are already in play uh, here in the book of Genesis. And so the Hebrew people are now uh, at least established in their lineage and now becomes uh, an interesting part of this book uh, because we, we find uh, Eber's name developing into uh, this man, this son that's going to be called Peleg. And unto Eber were born two sons, one Peleg, and in, in his days was the earth divided. And remember, most of the time when there's an actual description given, um, that description is actually the name being spelled out for us and what it means. And so Peleg or Palag uh, actually means division. And so it is going to be through this one man uh, that there's going to be some type of division. And his brother's name was Jaktan. And so this thing that begins to happen, I think, actually unfolds for us at the Tower of Babel. And so these two sons, uh, one of whom means division, uh, some people have said, well, this is talking about, you know, Pangea and this giant supercontinent that used to exist. And they go through a lot of gymnastics to try and say that it was at that time that there was a single continent and the continents began to drift apart and subduction happened and continents, the plates plunged underneath one another and they moved around and ultimately from this one landmass that is the size of most of the, the world's landmass that's above water today was all on one side of the earth. There's some fundamental technological and scientific problems with all of the landmass of the entire earth being on one side of the earth. Number one, the earth would wobble. Number two, all of the oceans of the earth require the landmass to block the flow of tidal flow from the moon and the sea. The surge tide where the continents ever all in one spot would make it so whichever side the, the tide was on, that tide would have been in excess of 100 feet tall. And so it, it creates this massive physiological problem for the earth Um, likely just simply saying that there's division coming. It's going to come through this guy. And it's going to be because they're going to get together and they're going to do evil. They're going to begin to take advantage of one another. They're going to work together to try and factor God uh, right out of the equation. And so when you uh, think of these names, you kind of think of what they're primarily responsible for. Uh, People will often say, well, you know, if it wasn't a giant continent, then how did all these people get all over the globe? Uh, we have to be really careful because there are some things that we do know. Uh, One thing that we do know is that there was a point in time when the earth was covered by large sheets of ice. We call it the glacial ages. Uh, The only problem is evolutionists believe that those glacial ages were hundreds of thousands of years ago. It is very very likely that those glacial ages were fairly short-lived and they were after the flood uh, for a very short period of time and only in certain parts and they couldn't have been in the part that people lived in uh, because they would have frozen to death. And so it is highly likely the continents did exist 
And those continents at that time likely had more almost assuredly at least a land bridge in the Bering Strait and another one in Malaysia. And so people literally could have pretty much walked from the major continents in, in the area of Eurasia, North America, and South America. And so those are the areas that would have been problematic um, that solves that particular issue. And finally, we kind of see the rest of the crew here picking up at verse 26. Jaktan begot Amalad and Shaleth, Harmazeth, Jerah, Hadaram, Uzel, Dekala, Obel, Amamel, Sheba, Ophir, Havala, and Yaakov, or Yabab, rather. And all these were the sons of Jaktan, and their dwelling place was in Mesha, as you go forth from Safar to the mountains of the east. And these are almost assuredly, uh, because these names are found all over the Arabian Peninsula, uh, the founder, in essence, of, of what we would call the, the, the Sabians, uh, probably the Nabataeans, uh, likely those southern people that live on uh, the continent or on the peninsula that we call Saudi Arabia. And so they inhabited Arabia at that time. Now, bear in mind uh, that if you're moving into an area that is as arid and dry and as uh, inhospitable as that, you're going to end up with a lot fewer people. And so you would expect to find archaeological ruins that would be relative to a fairly minor amount of people. And again, that's exactly what you find uh, when you begin to explore the Arabian Peninsula. Verse 31, and these were the sons of Shem, according to their family, according to their language, and according to their lands, and according to their nations. And so 26 nations listed coming from Shem, 30 from Ham, 14 for Japheth. Total them up, what do you get? You get 70. As we look at the number of 70 in Scripture, it's interesting because it is one of those numbers that comes up repeatedly, comes up frequently, it comes up often. Uh, it, it is that number uh, that we look at the, even the final number of weeks that are determined for mankind. That number is 70. Uh, Israel had 70 elders. Uh, ultimately, the number of the members of the Jewish Sanhedrin, less the high priest and his assistant, was 70. Uh, there were 70 scholars that gave us the Septuagint. Uh, this number just comes up over and over and over again. And so I think God was saying, look, this is the end of it. This is the total. This is the real number. Uh, these are the sons. And the reason that that is important, if there were thousands of sons, or if there were only eight, you're going to have a tough time explaining the population of the world that existed from roughly 3,000 years ago until today. There's just simply not enough time for us to reach the population that we currently have. If there was any more than that, then the world would have had billions more people than it already has. And so, again, this number is just kind of puts us in the realm of, of possibility when we look at how the world is currently populated and what we see archaeologically left on the earth as a remnant uh, from peoples who have lived in specific areas. One of the great things that evolutionists have to wrestle with is the fact that there is so little evidence of human remains that exist more than a few thousand years. Uh, there are very, very, very limited archaeological remains uh, that can be dated to much more than about four or 5,000 years old. And so it's exactly what you'd find uh, if your Bible was true. And so the extrapolation of that data and the carbon dating of fossils that have been found in the African continent to make man potentially 
million and a half years old are based on a handful of bone fragments. Uh, and those bone fragments have been left out in the desert in a wash to where they've been constantly uh, degraded. And so uh, your Bible is accurate in what it portrays of what we would expect to find around the world uh, in the study of, of archaeology. Some final things, some things that we can think on from this particular passage. In total, we have 70 of these nations, and we can call them primeval nations. They're, they're the original nations that were here, uh, that from all of these sons and obviously daughters, again, remember this is written with a Hebrew narrative, so they're not going to list all the girls, they just list the guys. Uh, there were at least as many women, if not more. Uh, and so uh, it, it, it has four things that I think I want to draw out of this as we kind of wrap this up. When you think about what the Lord's doing as he explains these things, first thing that I see is that God, God is the God of all nations. I want you to notice this. There's only one God. That one God revealed himself to one man. That one man's name, Noah, he transmitted that information to his sons. Those three sons survive in the ark along with their wives. Every one of these have at least an understanding that there is a God. And that God, they have some responsibility to. So there's not a people group in all of these nations that are listed here that did not originally have some understanding that there was a God in heaven who was the creator of heaven and earth. And so God is the God of all nations. We have a tendency in our culture to think that he's kind of the God of Christian nations, or he's, he's the God of specific peoples who have received and believed him. No, God's the God of everyone. And in that sense, we are all, as your Bible tells us, related God's promises that he's made, he's made to humankind. He's made to the descendants of Noah. And so he cares about everyone. A second thing that you see, and this is really kind of uh, in spite of all of our human-caused differences that are external, we all belong to the exact same family. Ultimately, every last person in this room is related. And as I shared with you, you can read it, it's in... April's issue of National Geographic, they have now come up with the number that basically our DNA across every single what we call racial line, across every racial line, your DNA, everyone in this room, regardless of where you came from, what country you are born in, what language you speak, what skin color you have, your DNA is effectively 99.99% the same. We're all related. Genetics tells us that. Your Bible also tells us that. Ultimately, we all came from a single human family. We're related through Noah by Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so from them came all of the nations of the earth, which means we cannot and are not related to monkeys. Amen? I got to admit, at times people would have right to think I'm related to a baboon or something, but I, I do howl every once in a while. But 
The thing that's beautiful in this, no race, no people group, no language, no country can claim to have the upper hand on anybody else. Because we're all family. We all have different gifts. We have different skills. We have different talents. We have different uniquenesses that make each group wonderful. But at the end, we're brothers and sisters. There is, Scripture says, a brotherhood of mankind. There, there isn't one that's better than another. A third thing. God has a purpose for every single nation, every single group of people. He didn't leave anybody out. And when you look at these lists, I was sitting there looking over them and starting to think through all of the nations that they represent. And there's something wonderful and something unique about every last one of these countries, every one of these nations. They brought something to this earth. So God has a purpose. As much as we may not like the way God has used certain nations in the past, God used Egypt. God used Babylon. God used Assyria. God used Media Persia. God used Rome. God used Russia. God used the United States of America. But he has a purpose for all of us. And when we find that purpose and we engage in that purpose, the world is actually better for it. And so don't dismiss anybody because they come from that country. Every country is important to God. And he has a purpose for each one. You look back on some of these pagan rulers that God used. God used pagan rulers Sometimes in miraculous ways, use Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus, Darius the Mede. God even used Augustus Caesar. So don't think anybody doesn't matter. Everybody matters. Every person on this planet matters to God. And ultimately to the end, as it says here and frequently in the book of Psalms as well, uh, he speaks of all you lands, of all the nations, of all these groups of people. And, and he's talking about his concern for all of us. God is not more concerned for us as a purported Christian nation than he is for, let's say, Saudi Arabia, which is clearly a Muslim nation, an Islamic nation. He's not. He loves Arab people as much as he loves us. He wants all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of repentance, but he doesn't like us more than he likes all of the rest of the people. He loves us in a different way when we have committed our life to him, when we've committed to walk with him, when we are his children, we're in his family. But as far as the way he treats all nations, he's concerned about every nation. One of the reasons that I'm so convinced that one of the great failures of the modern church is we have lost a view of the great commandment. We're no longer concerned with other nations. We, we become isolationists in our churches. And so we just kind of sit back and, and we watch the building get bigger and the number of people get larger and, and we're not reaching out. Now, I'm not saying that's true here because it's not true here. We're reaching out all over the globe. But a vast majority of churches in our world are pretty much concerned about themselves. And it's time, it's time to wake up to the reality that God is concerned for every nation. 
Every group of people. And so God lays out who these people are. He's going to set in motion uh, the journey to the promised land that will be taken by the central figure that we'll get to very quickly uh, as we come to the life of Abram first, who will become Abraham. But God loves people. It was clear here. It's still clear today. Amen? Why don't you stand with me and we'll pray. I'm going to bring John and Sarah back out. And some of the pastors are going to come forward and be available for prayer. Father, we thank you. Lord, we thank you that you have an undying love for all of mankind. You're the God of every tribe and tongue and nation. Your will is that all would come to the knowledge of repentance and be saved. And so, Lord, we pray that through our feeble efforts to reach out across the globe, Lord, I was just thinking of this incredible family that we have uh, in Latin America, Lord, as I was sharing with all these pastors whose churches are growing, there are literally thousands of people, thousands of people uh, that have been touched, Lord, by the outreach of this one church. And I just wonder if all of us who know you got together and just sought to really fulfill that great commission to go into all the world to make disciples of all nations, Lord, if you, if you wouldn't come and get us. And so, Lord, uh, to that end, we, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, but we pray for the peace of Riyadh. Uh, we pray for the peace of Tehran, too. And, Lord, the peace of Bangladesh and Bangalore, India. Lord, we pray for the peace of Beijing and Pyongyang. Lord, we pray for the peace of Moscow London, Lord Berlin. We pray for the, the peace of Nairobi, Livingston Town, Cape Town. Lord, we think of all these people that if they were to take their last breath today, many of them would perish because they don't know you. Lord, help us concern ourselves with what you're concerned for. And that's all nations. We love you, we praise you, we bless you. We ask all this in the mighty name of Jesus, the only Lord for all nations. His name, amen.